Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Art Fight Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Nolan. I'm here with Brian Siskin. And uh, this week, we've got our guest who's coming to us live from Virginia. He's just just escaped from New York, uh, just like the film. And we're going to talk today with the director of, I, I guess, it's I don't know if it's actually, I was going to say award-winning short film because it's clearly going to win many awards uh, as soon as people see it more. It was supposed to be at uh, South by Southwest this year, right? It's called Lions in the Corner. Welcome our friend, Paul Hairston. Uh, hello, thank you so much. <laughs> so, really quick, I, 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 I'm not even sure how I came across your film, but I came across it on Twitter. I think somebody tweeted about it or something, and I realized, well, oh, this sounds like the kind of thing that we would be interested in for the podcast. And I tracked you down on Twitter. I tracked your film down, and I, I, I wanted to get into this a little bit before we got on the air today, but but we didn't have a chance. But it's just fine because that's why we're here to talk about. But your movie was supposed to was it supposed to debut at South by Southwest this year? No, interestingly, it 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 wasn't supposed to debut there. I was actually really surprised. It 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 had an online premiere back in August, so almost a year okay. ago, and you know it got like a Vimeo staff pick, and it sort of stayed that way for a mm. while. Which is, I didn't you know, know. Yeah, I didn't know about any of this like online uh, happenings. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 a great you know Vimeo is is a really great place to sort of. I I just felt like I needed to get something out there. It yeah. had been a while since I had released something that, you know, wasn't a commercial or something branded. Sure. So so I, I put that out there. I was like, I don't really I'm not going to wait for festivals. I'm going to put it out there. But I said, heck, you know, I'll submit it anyway. Festivals mm -hmm. are usually pretty resistant to um, picking up stuff that's already freely available online. So when it got into South by, I learned about that, you know, four months later. I was floored and really excited. And, you know, I'd never done the festival run before. Uh huh. Uh, but uh, wow. yeah, I mean, it was, I was, I was actually, it was really sad. I was in Australia when, you know, coronavirus was taken off, like I mentioned. And I remember like, I was supposed to go there with my dad. He was going to like drive down with me and he was re really excited to like see a lot of the, the booths and the programs and, and also not even just film stuff. Yeah, the whole and, thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, they were saying, we're not going to cancel it. Like all these people were dropping out. Like Colbert right. was supposed to speak. Like, you know, all these people are supposed to come. Like Jack Dorsey was supposed to come. And, you know, everyone was dropping out. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll go. And it'll be this weird little half festival. And I'm not even kidding. I booked like an Airbnb when they said, like, it's not canceled. Don't worry about it. We're still having it. And I felt weird about going. And then even my dad dropped out. He's like, I can't go. I'm sorry. So I was like, all right. So it's just me going. Booked an Airbnb, booked a flight, and the next day, not even maybe not even 24 hours, maybe like 12 yeah. hours later, yeah. they were like three or four days before the festival. They're like, ah, sorry, we're shutting up the whole thing down. So, right. like one hour after you could have canceled your ticket or something exactly. like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> so did you did you just not go to? You didn't go at all. You didn't just go to Austin to go to Austin in the middle of a pandemic or anything like that. No. <laughs> I, I, that. I did miss. It. I've been to Austin like probably five or six times, and I have a lot of love for that city. But for me, it was mainly I'd never done the festival thing before, so I, I felt sort of unlucky. I mean, obviously, there's nothing we can do about it, but I, I felt sort of bummed that the first year I sort of, you know, had my foray into that world, public gatherings are are not possible. <laughs> right, totally. I, I write, I do a lot of like critical writing about movies, and I, I believe that I got an update at some point that they, that if, and correct me if I'm wrong, and tell me if your movie was included with this, but at some point, I think they put out at least a selection of short movies from the festival and made those available to stream. Does that yeah. sound familiar? W was your movie included in that? Yes, it was. Oh, and okay, that right. I actually I have a, a huge, you know, you know, I say that, you know, South by canceled right before. I think they were doing everything in their power to make the festival happen. I don't want to make it. Oh, sound of course. Like I'm sure. Un ungrateful at all. I think they're they, what they did in response to this like unprecedented pandemic is, you know, they 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 reached out to all the feature filmmakers originally and they told us they're like, hey, we have this deal for willing participants in the feature lineup that, you know, they're going to have a 10 day online you know, you don't need to make an account. You can just watch it on Amazon Prime. And then like a week later, they and not everyone wanted to do it. A lot of people were like, no, I didn't, you know, make this film. So, you know, everyone can watch it for free and sort of ruin my chances at distribution or whatever. Sure. So I, like it for me, my film is already online. Yeah, you know, I already made the rounds. I was like, you know, more exposure. And <laughs> probably the coolest thing about that, if you're a film buff, you probably have heard of Letterboxd. And that's like, you know, the, the film social media network or whatever. And I've been following that for like five or six years. 
And I was like so excited to see that someone had put my film on Letterboxd and it was like this like publicly accessible forum for reviews. It was both a good and a bad thing. I think the top review right now is good story. Okay, doc. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So that's, uh, it's, it's wild. Like when you open it up like that, but I think in a way, you know, one of the things I found very fascinating since this all started, like culturally speaking, it's, you, it's not that big of a leap to understand why it is this way. But like, for instance, visual art galleries, museums, things like that, they've had a lot of trouble to me translating their kind of programming to a digital environment, right? Because you, the experience of being in an art space is just not something that translates to a flat screen very well, you know? Now, that said, we already, you know, viewing on our screens at home was something movies were already doing. It's just further down the chain of distribution. And so films just kind of started saying, like, except for ones like you're talking about and, you know, big studio, like somebody who's, you know, this is the thing I worked on for all this time and all this money. And I really have to wait and get it in a theater and make it available for distribution and sale and that kind of thing. And, or some big studios who had big, you know, tent pole type films who are just like, we're just going to hold on to it. You know, Disney hasn't released Mulan yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so they're just going to, yeah, they're just going to wait, you know, but lots of lots of people and lots of movies, they just said, hey, go for it. Let's just yeah. put it out there, put it put it for pay on a platform or put it for streaming right now or whatever. So I find I find the way the film world has reacted to be really interesting because they've done it very quick. They very quickly made a lot of decisions and very quickly. I mean, one of the main things people are going to remember about this time was watching movies, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? A lot so, of time at home. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting. And I think it's really rad that that you took advantage of just the, the opportunities you have with Vimeo. I'm really glad that South by was smart enough to 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 include your movie anyway and say, look, we this is really good and really well done and really interesting and, and it deserves even more exposure that we could give it. I'm glad that they followed through the way they did and have done all these cool things to get those movies out to the world anyway. And, you know, somehow in the combination of all that stuff, it came across my eyes and I am so glad I took the time to watch that movie because it is rad. Brian, we, we haven't given you any room to say anything if you want to jump in here. I, I, listen, I wasn't sure if that was like a deliberate situation uh, or, or not. I was just going to sort of let it ride and see just what happens. Talking. Just keep no, talking. No, to <laughs> no uh, well, I mean, if, if we, I would love to just get right into the, the film itself because I like talking about that but I also like getting past that you know what I mean so right. so maybe like with, without sort of softballing it too much we can just you know do the whole thing where it's like hey so tell me about the film but I'm really interested primarily not just in sort of what it's about obviously and people understanding that but what it means but ultimately also very interested in sort of the, the origin story of the, the, the film itself and then also what perhaps, you know, challenges you had and all that. So maybe you can just kind of lay it out you know, in general for us and then we can sort of drill down, drill down a little bit. <laughs> uh, sure. And, sure and, yeah. and there's no wrong answers, really. Yeah. No, I mean, I could, I could just walk. I could just walk away. Uh, that's right. Uh, you could just leave. Yeah. That's actually, that's actually not happened yet. Maybe that's a mark of success yeah. for this podcast is if somebody yeah. just is just like, fuck this. We I'm, haven't really I'm thought out. about how high, how, how high we've gone over that mark. We've gone quite a ways over that mark <laughs> to never trip it up. Have somebody just be like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. anyway, so that's... yeah, tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's called Lines in the Corner, and it is probably the briefest summary is about it is a, it started out as sort of a alternative to gun and knife violence in rural Virginia. This guy. <laughs> that should be the official subtitle. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what Lions in the Corner, an alternative to gun and knife violence in <laughs> rural West Virginia. Or, or, but it's yeah. about a group called Street Beefs. Uh, and yeah. Street Beefs was started back, like, probably officially in 2013 by this guy named, probably his, his most popular name is Scarface. His actual name is Chris Wilmore. I call him Chris. I don't think I've ever actually called him Scarface, but a lot of people there call him Scarface. And I've known him. I, you know, it takes place in in a in a in a town called Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is in the western side of Virginia, really close to West Virginia. And I met this guy like ten years ago when I was like weightlifting at this gym. And he's a really like he's an intense looking dude. I mean, he'll admit it. He's like 
he was in a um, house fire when he was like six or seven, mm-hmm. and and they and I believe he told me they suspect it to be gang related, but it might have been an accident. They're not sure, but he's he hit half of his face is covered in burn scars. And so seeing him, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, man, this guy looks intense. And then like, you know, in 2016, I learned about this club that he started in 2013 or not a club, a group called Street Beefs. And sort of the reason he started it was, you know, at the time in 2013, he was just losing friends like left and right to gunshot wounds and and knife wounds over like really petty stuff, you know, like women or money. And so he basically was like, you know, the way it works now is, you know, he's sort of He's got a million subscribers on YouTube now. He's like blown up. You know, he started uploading these fights at a competitive level, but he also uploads videos of the actual beefs. But but the 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 way it started was primarily for for you know he would hear Jim and Joe are fighting over you know a girl or money owed or whatever, and be like, guys, I know you both own guns, or I know you both are like you know eager to use a knife. I've got this like backyard. I've got like a ref. I can ref. Why don't we just put some MMA gloves on and figure it out? And let's just see if, if you get some testosterone pumping, if you just get your blood pumping, maybe that'll figure it out. And yeah. it sort of blew up into this very successful program, not only in this sort of small town locality that is this part of Virginia, but it's, you know, it went from like statewide to national to international. And when I discovered the story, it was right after the New York Times did a piece on him and the group. And they actually did a doc as well. It was like a 20 minute, it's very journalistic. It's not very cinematic, but it's well done and it explores the concept really well. So I saw that and I was like, how am I not doing this doc? This is in my hometown. I know this guy. Yeah. And so I actually started filming it in 2016, but it took until 2018 to finish filming because the fight days themselves are so big now and so unpredictable to land a shoot date where we could have all the crew and all the resources with at least like 10 to 15 fights was really hard. I mean, we stopped yeah. started for like months before we nailed down a date. Uh huh. And how many, how many people are in the crew? Like one of the things I find fascinating about this is just how did you guys actually pull this off? Is I mean, obviously you're there, but how many other people do you have with you? Oh, uh, like the film crew? Yeah. Um, we were pretty targeted. I, I've been, I've been, I would say professionally directing at a commercial level for the past like five years. Mm-hmm. And I sort of got together some, you know, a, a cinematographer I was close with, you know, even people that lived that I grew up with that I would make like YouTube shorts as like a teenager. You know, I pulled them in to like be a production assistant. And like, so I think it was really only four or five people. We had a steady cam operator. Right cinematographer, assistant camera, and a PA and me. So it's five uh-huh. total. The one, the one other, I mean, there, there's a whole lot to talk about within all that realm and stuff, but the one thing that I really found, I mean, I found a lot of it to be compelling. And when you talk about, you know, you just sort of mentioned the difference between this sort of journalistic piece that the New York times did and the cinematic piece that you did, maybe we can break that down for people who don't understand what the difference of those two things is. But one of the things that I really loved about your cinematic take on it was that the sound was fucking incredible, man. And like, how did you do the sound? Cause I don't know how you, how did you do the sound? Because it blows my mind how, cause it's a big space. Those guys are fighting in and man, the sound of those, those blows hitting it's, it's really, it's really, it's a very interesting thing. Cause when you, you know, in, in right now in, in the MMA world, we're seeing some fights take place on television without crowds. And that changes that whole oral experience of it as well. But, but the sound of guys outside punching each other, it's very much, it's, you very much captured that part of it very well. And I think it's one of the things that really is immersive about that movie. So anyway, so without further ado, let me shut up so you can tell me, how did you get this sound? (laughs) I'm really glad that you said that because actually, that was sort of a what it, so it also premiered in some european festivals and and it it actually went to an australian festival as well one mm-hmm. of the main comments that they had and i don't know if this is just an american sensibility but they're like the sounds sound so unrealistic like the punches sound ridiculous <laughs> sound cartoony and i was like that's just because americans need to hear that violence you know like i don't know what it is but but the 
the way I did it was probably half of that is, you know, we had we had sounds to track and that's like we had a boom operator get in uh-huh. and over them. So there, there's a boom operator hovering. But a lot of that is due to the uh, genius of a sound designer that I worked with in post uh-huh. named Jeff Strasser at a, at a sound company called Mr. Bronx. And he just, you know, I worked with him for about a week and he I've been working with him since 2015. But, you know, he that was really the goal was like, how do we how do we sort of make that juxtaposition of this sort of like really callous violence towards uh-huh. the more emotional elements uh, later on in the film? I really wanted those two to, to to really butt up against each other as much as possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think also it's uh, I mean, anybody from like a sort of film 101 sort of perspective knows that sound is the most overlooked underutilized uh, method to get your story and, and to elevate your film on, on a completely new level. Uh, that's a huge boon to, to, your, to your film to have really conscious sound design and really thoughtful uh, source material to sort of use for that sound design. I, I think that when I, when I watched it, <clears throat> and maybe it's just because I know a little bit about what's going on under the hood, you know, just from understanding how things get made a little bit, there was only maybe a couple of moments where I felt like it was a little hyper illustrated if there was any sort of critique at all. Only a couple of moments where I was actually slightly sort of taken or, or, or distracted by it. But for me, that's, that's pretty massive in a good way. Like that I wasn't usually technical things and, and hyper articulated things fully distract me as a person who does filmmaking. So like it, it all flowed and worked to me. I was wondering too, like, it's kind of like, is this sound design or was this captured and how was it captured? You could tell that the source, it wasn't like, let's take a bunch of stuff from a sound library and superimpose yeah. <laughs> it. I mean, you could tell that it was, you know, you know, more natural, but even like, did they have some sort of like a parabolic, you know, or something that was, you know, like sort of hyper shotgunning this sound, but, but it was really cool. And also I think that one of the things you do well in the film is uh, rhythm and the way that you can punctuate beats and parallel beats in filmmaking to paralleling beats in fights and the sort of escalating sort of tensions that you want in a film and the escalating tensions that you want to portray in a fight were very at, at sort of a, a parody or at, at a point of cooperation that I thought was really cool and, and sort of seamless. It just all felt good. And, and even when things got sort of quick, I, I didn't feel like I was getting like, okay, here comes the editing show, you know, like, right. you know, I, I, it felt like you kind of got brought into it and then sort of brought back out of it in a nice uh, rhythmic and, and natural way. That's so good to hear. And I, I really appreciate that. No, and I agree with you about the the sound design, that it can be sort of over illustrative. And I think, you know, for me, that was a bit of a learning experience because I, most of my portfolio is sort of antithetical to that piece. I mean, I like most of my personal work and commercial work are very slow, very saccharine, emotional pieces. <laughs> and I, I, it was like, I had never made anything like that. And I remember when I put it out, a lot of people were like, did you make that? Like, is this your, are you co-directing this? Is this with someone else? So, <laughs> and, and, and so I, I completely agree with you. And I, that for me was an opportunity to sort of learn how to sort of approach. And that was new to me. I, I grew up, this is sort of an aside, but I grew up Mennonite, which is our yeah. notorious pacifistic uh, denomination of, of Christianity. And it fighting to me was just something I never understood, never had any awareness about. So that those probably overly like illustrative sound effects are because I've never been in a fight. Uh, the first time I've really ever watched a fight was that project. So, mm. you know, to me, I was like, oh, this is how it sounds all the time. Like, this is what Rocky sounded like. You know, like I just, <laughs> it, was, it was probably my unfamiliar or wasn't familiar with what you know fights actually sound like but it was a good opportunity because i love pacing i'm really obsessed with pacing to like you said sort of punctuate that rhythm and and give the uh, story arc some chapter markers yeah i think you did a nice job with that and i think and you know did a great job as well of you know the 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 really the the deeper story of the movie is really the story about Scarface and about, you know, like you said, this fact that he had been in this, you know, basically has had a very tough life, obviously came up in a tough situation, found himself in jail at a young age, 
got out of jail, met a woman, has had a couple of children, and is basically trying to live a decent life for himself, but is constantly challenged also by the fact that he's a convicted felon. And there's, you know, unfortunately in our society, like we all but write those people off and then still expect them to be exemplary citizens somehow, you know, so he's struggling with those things. And then this, this uh, beefs club is like all like, an ex- you know, sort of like his way of finding a thing that he can do that's, you know, uh, a, a business he can run and a and a service he can offer. And, yeah. and really and, and it's really insights that only somebody like him could could have that that like, hey, something like this could work. Most yeah. most other people wouldn't think. Hey, we'll just put guys in a fight in the backyard and it'll actually have this real positive social effect. Right. No, I don't even think, I think, you know, to start for him, he was just like, he was like, how do I stop my friends from dying? And, you know, I think he, he, you know, was in a gang uh, that's mentioned in the film and he, you know, he, the reason, you know, he also has this sort of hoarse voice uh, It's covered in the film because he was just straight stabbed in the throat in a bar fight and like, you know, was lying on the ground bleeding to death. So he knows what it's like, you know, to escalate. I think he's been in any number of and he was like involved in a, a prescription drug ring. And so he's like been around the block. And I think, you know, to start and I think it sort of surprised him from I mean, he would probably be able to speak on this better than me, but it surprised him from its sort of culmination 2012, 2013 to 2016 when the New York Times came in. Because once he started uploading these fights to YouTube and then people started coming not because they wanted to solve a beef, but just because they wanted to fight. So I would say now the group, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's exploded in popularity. I definitely came into it and published this film sort of late in the game. If I had published it like four years ago, it would probably be a little bit more true to how I portrayed it. But now it is for sure an online sensation. I've been in New York and Brooklyn and like, you know, I've literally seen, I'm not even kidding, I've literally seen Uber drivers with a Street Beast video pulled up on their like phone just because they have like, you know, a million subscribers. So now I'd say like most of the fights there are like 80, 75% sport 15. So now it's like the beef element is like sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we still do that. But, you know, yeah. it's secondary now. Uh-huh. But but like a like a, you know, an amateur boxing club that that, you know, those also fulfill that same need for these younger, you know, younger kids, especially or, or you know, even even, you know, older people or whatever to be in a situation where it's like, hey, you know, if you're here learning how to box or learning how to be an MMA, you know, fighter, you're not out on the streets getting in trouble, you know, and, or if you are out in the streets getting in trouble, why don't you come here and show how bad you are instead of killing each other out there? One of the things, one of the things you show in the movie too, which I think is cool. And I think a lot of times in like the MMA world or in the boxing world or whatever, it can seem like it's all a bit more, a bit more put on maybe, or a bit more just traditional for, for two people who've seemed to have had a lot of enmity for each other to at the end of a fight, you know, look each other in the eye and, and obviously respect each other very much and even have an affection for one another. But I think in your movie, it really goes a long way to showing, no, that's actually real. That really happens between people and two people who, you know, like in a situation with gangs, especially something like that, it comes down to like a whole thing of like, I have to be respected. You know what I mean? For all yeah. these reasons. And and it might not even be that I even hate you that much or that I even want to hurt you that bad. But I have to, I'm in a position where I have to do this because, because I live in a hierarchy and I I don't want to lose my spot and this is expected of me and who knows what, you know? So I think a lot of times in your video, you show how, you know, two people like that who might be representatives of whole groups that are at each other's throats, you know, like they can actually, it actually works where these guys actually go ahead and pound on each other. And at the end of it, it's good. And everybody yeah. walks away and everybody can hold their heads up high and say, Hey, you know, that's got settled. You know, that's yeah. all done. We're done with that now. You know, it actually works. And that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, like, uh, it's so interesting that you've covered like that and the, the felon stuff. There are so many elements to this and I wasn't really sure how to focus it for me. Like the biggest thing was that, that like, even though it's turned into this sporting thing, it's the community. Like these people are training twice a week. People are driving in like two or three hours just to be a part of this community. And often a lot of these people are ex drug addicts. A lot of these people were hooked on opioids, alcoholics. And if they're not addicted to something or formerly addicted to something, they're felons and they can't, you know, a lot of these people just can't get jobs. And so, you know, instead of 
doing God knows what out there. They're coming to this commu- this devoted community that meets, mm. you know, twice a week and then has these events once a month. You no, know, you hit it right on the the head there. It's like it's not only this preventative, you know, thing for for gun and knife violence. It's this sort of emotional support group for I think a group of people that don't really know how to communicate to each other with an emotional clarity. If that makes sense, mm. like yeah, and that's that to me was like you see this group on the surface and you're like, you know, any, you know, Joe or Jane on the street would say, oh, this is just a bunch of shirtless dudes in the, in the County, like beating the piss out of each other. But there is this, <laughs> this like deep rooted emotionality to like why they do it and why they keep coming back and the sort of community that is subtly fostered with this. And they have like a Facebook group and they're giving people like rides from like Ohio and even California. <laughs> and, like, putting people up. I mean, it, it really shocked me. And it's, it's very surreal to see these just like, you know, like face tatted to toe, just like ripped dudes, just being like, I love you, man. Like, (laughs) just like, like, you know, hugging each other. And it's, it's really interesting. What was it like for you? You know, I'll say this, I'll preface the question with this. You know, I think for any of us that are combat sports fans, you know, we've all been in a spot where you have to sort of reconcile, you know, the the realities of what's what's going on and it can be hard at times depending on the outcomes sometimes or how, how bloody the fight is or whatever it can be hard sometimes or, or uh, to sort of justify it or to you kind of wrestle with yourself about it and I think a lot of people that we talk to that are writers and you know creatives and other realms associated to to combat sports I think a lot of us are people that are essentially magnetized to stories and concentrated narratives and power and impact and visual beauty and, and whatever realm. And so there's just something about the, the compression of the human experience that is what fighting is, that it's just, it's this primordial thing that we're all magnetized towards. And it just, it just is. And we have to sort of work to reconcile that. Did you find yourself coming from a, like sort of a Mennonite upbringing and, you know, you know, to being sort of up close and personal with it? What was that sort of walk like for you? Were there certain things where immediately maybe you felt you didn't want to portray as much in the film or that you wanted to perhaps mm-hmm. maybe soften? Uh, whereas maybe in other ways you realized after you've even just been there a, 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 for a shoot or two, you kind of acclimated, you know, like how did that work for you? That's a really great question. It was definitely, you know, I, this sounds like the most pretentious thing a filmmaker can say, but it was a highly introspective experience for me because like, if you would ask me five years ago, is there a role for violence? I would just would have said flat out, absolutely not. No, like, you know, we as a society and as as a species have evolved beyond that. We've developed beyond that. Violence is this superfluous, like, you know, sort of vestigial element of our existence that we shouldn't. But looking at this, I think that it has taught me that there is nuance to the human experience that is so deep and so layered for, you know, not only like sort of your upbringing and like, you know, what you've learned to value, whether that how you communicate. Right. So like I I'm not saying all these people don't know how to talk to each other and they're just like Neanderthals. There are plenty of wildly intelligent people that I've met in Street Beasts and, you know, really amazing human beings. But it, it is just a fundamentally different upbringing than, than what I had. And I think that sort of what I learned through this experience and as a doc director in general, I've sort of pushed myself to feel this way more often than not, is where is the empathy that I, I don't understand, right? And so the first couple of shoots was really digging deep in myself and my ideology to extend an empathy for why this makes sense. And I still have never been in a fight. I still don't, you know, I don't do any sort of, you know, even vaguely fight related, you know, cardio or anything. But, <laughs> uh, but, but, but it has fundamentally changed my perspective on the role of things like MMA and boxing and everything, which I used to see as barbaric. And I actually see them now as exactly like you just put it, a fundamental part of our biology. And I think a fundamental part that, you know, it's made me measure violence in an end result. Would, I, would you rather have someone, you know, sweat it out, maybe get a couple bruises, you know, a dinged up cheekbone with some gloves and like get all that energy out? It's technically violence. Or would you rather have someone with a, a bullet hole or a knife wound? And like when you start examining and not to say that that's like how you should measure, you know, competitive sporting is not measured in that you know right. way. But not, like, not including but like in, CTE or right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like. It, it made me really analyze why people like it. And, and as I sort of watched the fights unfold, I got into it too. And I think there is like just a 
a connectivity of two people fighting and witnessing that, that sort of give and take of, of power, that is just innately human. And I think, you know, I will always, you know, from here on out, see fighting as just a fundamentally uh, human thing. Yeah, Joe. I think, you know, one of the things that makes me, you know, question like the things you're talking about right now is like you you sort of couched all this in the in the in the context of you know being a documentary filmmaker are 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 you a documentary filmmaker by because you specifically want to be a documentary filmmaker or are you a documentary filmmaker because that's been the kind of movie you've had the opportunity to make so far like what's your relationship to documentary film no, that's a good question. Probably even like a year ago, two years ago, I would have told you, oh, this is just a stepping stone mm-hmm. for narrative work. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to be doing, you know, I want to be the next Chris Nolan or whatever, you know, like, but <laughs> at, at this point, I have had so many phenomenally fulfilling experiences with doc filmmaking. And the more I get into it, and the more I sort of like learn and like hone, like and my, my, I guess, skill set and experiment with stuff. And I, you know, I'm, I've only been doing this a really short amount of time. I have so much left to learn and hopefully I will get into narrative. But for right now, I sort of see myself staying in the doc world. Uh, My next projects are going to be docs commercially. I'm, I'm most consistently hired for documentary work or at least real people involved. And yeah, I don't know. I, it's the, in my opinion, it's the best job in the world. You know, pre coronavirus, I was traveling, you know, 10, 11 places a year, meeting different people and just diving into their stories. And it's just fun. So I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, we talked a little bit about the fact that you, I, I don't I think this was uh, before we got on the air, you were talking about the fact that you had flown to Australia in April, was it? Uh, January to March. Or, oh, January to March. That's right. Yeah. yeah. January to March. And then you were coming back into New York basically at the worst time possible, right at the beginning of March. And, yeah. uh, and then you just recently got out of there to be in Virginia now. Is that right? Yeah. I was flying in probably a week after the first case in New York was reported. Like March 1st was the first case. So it was uh, like, I watched numbers go one, 30, a hundred. And like, when I was flying in, it was like, it was like several hundred. And like, you know, they were saying there's, you know, Tom Hanks had coronavirus in Australia, yeah. just like breathing the same air as everyone on this flight. And I just remember like every, anytime I'd hear someone cough, I would just like tense up. But oh, yeah, it was, when I landed, I had this like sore throat. I was convinced for a week that I had it, but, but I, I mean, I was essentially trapped. I mean, not, I mean, that sounds dramatic. I, I I was lucky enough that I had money and, you know, resources that I didn't need to go out and work every day. And I wasn't furloughed or anything, but I was inside my apartment for at one point three weeks and my roommate was gone. So I didn't see a single human for three weeks. Didn't deliver anything. Just bought like a ton of groceries and just like lived off of that for three weeks because it was terrifying for, you know, yeah. for, you know, mid, late March into early April. It was yeah, especially in New York. Yeah. Epicenter. So like, you know, for instance, like I'm working on uh, a doc next week. I'm just doing the drone op work for it. And I, I'm working with this production company out of uh, L.A. And, you know, I had to tell them, I said, look, you know, I, I have. The only way I can go to all these you know locations throughout the South to do all the shooting that you need, oh. <laughs> I just said I, I'm I need an RV. You know, yeah, like I, there's not I'm not gonna go and just like stay at a hotel, uh, Airbnb, and just yeah. kind of pretend like things are okay. You know, did my research and I was just like, no, especially when you're out in the field and you're you know, shooting in places, you know, if you're just doing the drone work, it's not like you're uh, on a permitted site with all these PAs and all this stuff. It's like, you're just kind of out there after maybe the, the main stuff's already been shot, you know, a month before or whatever. And they've just kind of given you a list of some things they really want. And you're out there just sort of getting it, but I'm, I'm going to have to go shoot, you know, basically next week living out of an RV for about a week across Kentucky and Tennessee and South Carolina, which I'm happy to do. Right. I mean, yeah, but I just realized once faced with a job in this environment that required that much travel and what was going to be happening, I was like, this is kind of the only way that I'll do it, that I feel safe. So I guess my question to you is like, you know, how are you, how are you, how are you doing right now? And how are you moving forward with projects that you have? And, and how is that looking in terms of, you know, the climate right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think all of obviously Hollywood, 
but also the commercial sphere and the you know that the branded content sphere everyone's confused no one knows what to do i i've been lucky enough that i've been doing a lot of user generated content where i'm remotely directing people to shoot themselves and you know we sort of dead drop media and like you know i'm able to we're able to sanitize the equipment and the cards and whatever but yeah, physical shoots are sort of an enigma right now and sort of a Pandora's box of like, you know, we have no idea what that's going to look like. And personally, the idea of shooting docs, I mean, you know, a month ago, I was like, oh, this is great. The whole country's sort of like getting a grip on things. And like, lo and behold, we aren't. So, you know, the, the cases are rising. And I don't know. I That's a really good question. At this point, you know, I have I have, I have a physical shoot at the end of this month in Colorado that I'm bidding on right now. I haven't uh, won it. But like, if I do win it, I'm not going to fly there. I'm likely going to drive. Yeah. And, you know, I think we have a really, we have like a crew of like four people and, you know, we all wear masks and we have to stand six feet away from each other and communicate over radios. And that'll be the first physical shoot that I will do. Yeah. And, you know, I wish I could ask for an RV, but you make a great point because, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's a no man's land no matter where you go. Yeah. I didn't want to have to like go into random places to use random bathrooms or whatever when you're just out in the field. Like I want a self-contained, I want a generator, I want a shower, I want yeah. I want the whole thing. And it's actually not crazy expensive when you put it all together. The best deals I've found are like if you do like an RV sprinter style because they actually get really good gas mileage, you know, but the availability of stuff right now is tricky because it's summer and everybody's flipping out and kind of doing something similar. So it's a weird, I, I, it's a weird thing when I'm looking at like, you know, $80,000 RV sprinters. I'm like, maybe we, that's an investment that we should just make right now. Like we'll have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, not that I can't afford that, but it just, it's funny. Like the, the instantly new things that you've never really considered before. Now, like maybe that's going to be the thing. Uh, yeah. Thunderdome yeah. food truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think that, you know, also it's, you know, from a, even from like a DP sort of perspective, right. You're going to be like, I don't know. Do we want to use the, are we going to use the 200 millimeter or the 300 millimeter for this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Telling your DP, sorry, we're only doing telephoto work from now on. So if right. use that, yeah. that'd be great. Uh, no, I, I actually, I, I remember I did this big job in uh, October of last year. It was like a month long job. And I was like so exhausted at the end of it. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just sublet my apartment and get like a trailer and just like, cause I know DPs who like pre Corona, like just live on like a plot of land that they rent for a hundred dollars a month. And then they just drive their trailer wherever they want. I think it's called like, uh, there's a name for it. RV life, trailer life, whatever yeah. that is. Van um, life, bro. Van life. Yeah, van life. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's like a weird interstitial of reality between the way that most people live and what is actually Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got really deep in the, the van life YouTube community and like for like a week there, I was like, you know, my, my algorithm was all van life stuff. Yeah, for a yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, like five worst things about living in a van with your significant other. And it's like you, the, like the bathroom is the worst part. Like a lot of the times it's just like, you're like riding <laughs> with your waist wherever you go and yeah. the smell is awful and just putting that out. So it's like, ah, I do like indoor plumbing, I guess, don't I? That's nice. Mm. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't. There's no, there's no way to document smell through Instagram, so no, nobody can tell. Nobody can tell how dehumanizing it actually is. No, I mean, ultimately, like proximity to anyone you care about, you need to weigh out very carefully. You know, my my wife and I have even thought about this for this. You know, because she she'll come with me on this gig because she's sort of my visual observer and helps me with not hurting myself or other people when flying a giant lawnmower camera in the sky. But, uh, but, you know, we were talking about like in our house, you know, like I have my own studio. She's got her own office. We're very lucky, very fortunate to be in this position. And this is how we've been able to stay home most of the time, if not all the time for the last four months and not go completely batshit crazy. But, but now we're going to put ourselves in an RV. We'll see how this goes, you know? Oh, so you're going together. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but should I be scared? No, I, gosh, I don't know. Uh, I've, 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 I've lived uh, with a significant other only <laughs> once in a fully furnished apartment, and it was fine. So I have no idea what it's like nah, to be in an even more fine nah, space. We'll, we'll do fine. We'll do fine. But it is interesting just to see about like, you know, we've talked about this with a few other guests for sure. But it's like, it's really important right now to see opportunity as much as you're seeing limitation because there's, there's so many weird circumstances that are creating 
new new potentials and yeah. you and you have to sort of evaluate these those on a level that is different than maybe the way you would typically evaluate ideas or plans or thoughts that you would want to have about a project because when you're forced into sort of ideating or creating new shit it's cool but it's like is this only cool because it, for like two weeks or is this something that will actually sort of survive or transcend the, the absolute weird d dynamic nature of everything that's going on you know it's a strange yeah. it's a strange new criteria for the evaluation of ideas and projects yeah i i'm biased in saying this you know literally because i've done like six user-generated content projects since like late march but i think that people were saying that you're in the next decade of at least you know online content. I don't know how much of this is going to lead. I'm mainly talking about the commercial sphere right now. That we're going to see just an enormous rise in user-generated content. It's going to become progressively cheaper. The the Instagrams and the Twitter users and the Snapchatters. You know, I sound so old saying that, yeah. but like they <laughs> they you know that's that's the way you know we're getting used to seeing the world and content is good. And if you look even in like. You know, I have some really talented friends who do music videos for like Billie Eilish and stuff and like half the stuff there and half the stuff for the, the more modern like Nike and Adidas campaigns are these sort of user generated aesthetics. And they just, you know, and you're I, in my opinion, I think especially with coronavirus, but in general, we're going to see this shift towards consumer oriented media that the and I will always have a role for like polished spots. I think those will always but they'll be less uh, prevalent than than the stuff we're seeing now. Yeah, it's similar. It's similar to like how what happened with music, you know, in the sort of transformation period uh, that music uh, studios went through, going from analog to digital back in the day, where, you know, you know, people had to realize that the stuff that it was just getting easier and easier for people to do at home and get nearly the same quality, and if it didn't have yeah. the same quality, it still had a quality that became the new sort of uh, moniker or language uh, or reference point for what is you know ostensibly the times you know but uh, but yeah. i do i think that's going to work a couple of different ways i mean i i have this i mentioned this i think before but it's like even like as we're on this show right now you know and you, we're all in these little boxes with our headphones you know i, I feel like i think i think that that's going to be become in time like the aesthetic that people don't want zoom the zoom call aesthetic let's just call it that right charming at first but now i think people yeah have, people, I think, associate that with anxiety and with distance yeah. and with stress. And I think that time will, sure. tell, time will tell how that sort of, that specific visual set of aesthetics or cues sort of, yeah. what, what that, whatever that prompts for people emotionally, or if it's like, you just never know if it's going to be something that's like kind of nostalgic and interesting, even though it's lesser, or if it's something where it's like, yeah, I don't even want to see that shit, man. Like, <laughs> you know, lived there, been there, done that. I don't want to see it anymore. It's anxiety inducing. Uh, Zoom calls, uh, Skype calls. I mean, it's like, I, I, I forget what article I read. I sound like I'm on Joe Rogan right now. We're uh, like, pull it up, Jamie. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they read this, this, this article that was like, the reason that we sort of get disconcerted uh, and uncomfortable and like sort of anxiety induced on these calls is because it's unnatural, the delay. Yeah. Like this little, little delay yeah. is just wholly unnatural to see someone's face and to have a group of people. It, it just, it is, our brains weren't wired to communicate with this sort of latency. It, it really yeah. is. Latency is the, the killer. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just even in that moment right there. Cause I just cut off Joe. Yeah. And then now latency. Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come up with a new I'm, composition. It's called latency. <laughs> latency. It's going to be four parts. Latency one, latency two. <laughs> no, I, I think that's true. I mean, I actually just the other day, something came up in an email where someone was suggesting, you know, some stuff and blah, blah, blah. And maybe we should all uh, get together uh, on a zoom call. And I was like, man, you know, Maybe the day of you can ask me again if I want to, but but right now if you're asking me to plan to have a Zoom call with everybody voluntarily, I just don't really feel like I'm gonna want to do that. You know, the podcast is different, and in a way, I feel like the aesthetics of the podcast are different. I mean, Brian and I are clearly professionals with microphones and headsets. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, so sound it's a, a little, lot better than I do. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> different. Yeah. No, but even you have your head. You know, you're not talking. You're not just somebody in their kitchen talking into their phone in this right. like 
casual way that that in the back of my mind is just going trauma, trauma, trauma. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. The world is on its, you know, on its yeah. edge. You know what I mean? So I feel like I feel like it's, you know, and and when I see a lot of the, you know, commercials and things like that that are like specifically, a, you know, just that that aesthetic and commercials and stuff, and not not specifically the user created kind of thing you were talking about, but like literally the Zoom phone aesthetic in, yeah. in this commercial and. We're all in this together, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm just like, oh my God, it, it just, it makes me, it's worse than just showing me, just show me some weird fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that we can all still hang out. No, that's show so funny. Weird fantasy. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I totally agree. And I think like the best advertising right now aren't the sort of hollow, like we're all in this together. We stand by you during this crisis. It's like exploring the narratives of what it looks like and why it sucks, you know, like right now and like, you know, how certain families and certain social dynamics are getting through. And to me, I, and I really probably only mean that from like a familial perspective. Like I, I feel like you were, you know, in a lot of the stuff that I work on, it's like, you know, what it looks like to raise kids right now and what it looks like to, you know, be at home way more with them than you usually are. You know, I've heard from older friends of mine, you know, that have kids that are in the double digits that it has fundamentally changed their relationship with their, you know, their kids, which was so interesting to me that just like, you know, you sort of forget how much time you hypothetically can spend with your children until you're forced to do it. And I've, I, you know, I think sort of having insight, human insight into those types of experiences, I know this sounds so sociopathic, is the best type of advertising to like relate to people like, you know, that like, this sucks, but here's a little ray of light. This is gold. We'll get this to the go. This is yeah, I know, gold. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is oh. yeah. No <laughs> one can resist it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well to, to sort of loop it back around to the film in a way, you know, because one of the things I think is interesting too in terms of the, the, the flavor of the times or what people tend to magnetize towards or maybe what people are maybe having a harder time digesting is sort of this notion of the sort of the anti-hero as the protagonist versus sort of the, the hero as the protagonist and the conventional hero as the protagonist, I think at this point is really not connecting because it seems disconnected from, you know, some from reality. I think that people seeing flaws and, and challenge and, people wrestling with themselves as they wrestle with something larger than themselves that they're trying to be their best selves to conquer a problem or to get through something. I think that the anti-hero is, is far more appealing right now. And I think that even though I know that your, your film was sort of in your mind, kind of a, on a delay and sort of captured something a little bit later than it's, most robust time and all of that. Still, the the story of of Scarface uh, or Mister Face or Face or Chris, <laughs> I will call him Sir. No, but uh, but you know, I think that his story is so is so timeless, and and he is, uh, I think, a, a great example of a, a sort of a from a societal point of view, not my point of view, but sort of the larger point of view, a felon, right? He's he's a kind of an antihero, right? And in, in, by yeah. definition, and I think that that's really there's a lot of warmth that surrounds. I think that, that kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, character right now. Yeah, I, I really appreciate hearing that because, you know, I'll say this about Chris. He is easily one of the most sincere and and just night. Like, it's funny you say that. I, I would equate him to probably the closest thing to a real, you know, hero that, yeah. that I've ever sort of encountered in the doc world. But, no, you make a great point because it's so funny you say that. I was just, I just finished rewatching The Sopranos and Breaking Bad. <laughs> which sort of yeah. were this, like, I, I would say, trailblazers in the world of television for the antihero. And, and, it do, and it does make you question why those shows are so popular and why someone like Scarface is, is such an alluring person to document because he is, his, 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 his flaws are on his face. You know, like, yeah. he, he, has, he was raised in, in an environment that, you know, thrust him into a, a world of crime and, and that eventually ended up with him being a felon. And, you know, like, it's... That's what I thought was so interesting about his character is that he he sort of made his mistakes, owns up to them very earnestly, and tries to help people not only younger than him, but even people his age avoid making those same mistakes. And people who have already made those mistakes, giving them a community and giving them a place of respite where they're understood and they're they're given a sincerity that they otherwise normally wouldn't be able to find. So so no, I that was something and I feel like I so often you know, in, in my documentary projects, try to find the most pure, the most emotionally like transparent. This was a hard one because as most of my portfolio was just these like probably 
you know, overtly emotional narratives. And this one was like, okay, this is, this is a challenging thing to find, you know, what the, what the morality of the situation is and like why what he is doing is clearly good for the good. And as I got more involved in it, it became so easy to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, it definitely is like a, a moving movie, a, a human movie. And, and I think a movie that sort of along the lines of what we kind of try to do when we're trying to juxtapose, you know, things like combat sports or martial arts against things like fine art and things like this that are, you know, things that are considered ugly by some people and things that are considered beautiful by other people and trying to show people that there's this overlap between us. And to me, like the, the story part of your movie and the character part of your movie do such a great job of, of telling that whole human story about this guy and, and all these people in this situation. But the art side of your movie and the deep like cinema of it uh, are as much a, a reason to watch your movie as, as to get to know Scarface and to find out more about this story. So if our listeners want to, you know, uh, check out the film for themselves, where should they go? And, uh, then we'll get to where we, wherever they can find you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. So if you just Google lions in the corner, mm -hmm. you're, you're probably going to come across, <laughs> you're going to come across three links. Uh, okay. it's, it's, it's online for free on my Vimeo uh -huh. on the street beefs, YouTube, uh -huh. And on my cinematographer, Gal Parat's Vimeo. So there are three places you can watch it right now for free. All right. Killer, killer. And where? Do, and where? What is your name on Twitter? And what? What platforms are you? Are you most active on? Probably Instagram, but yeah, my Twitter is pretty facetious. But uh, it's my Instagram is. <laughs> That's where I, I found you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's that was my, your first impression. It was a good first impression. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's just a bunch of like memes about millennials. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> my Instagram is just my first and last name. So Paul Harrison, all one word. H a i r s t o n. Yep. Cool. Right on. Right on. Well, thanks so much, Paul. We'll make sure that all the information and the links and everything are all in the show notes for everybody. So if you're uh, just listening on audio, uh, if you look in the show description, you'll have, you'll have things you can click to, to get to the, the film in there. And if you guys are watching live or after live, it'll be in the, in the, the description below, as the kids always say. But anyway, so uh, you know, is there anything else you feel like you want to, is there something upcoming or anything that you want to sort of shout out or anything before we head out? I would tell everyone listening to check out Art Fight podcast for sure. <laughs> right on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I was really happy to find you. Like I said, I just, I, you know, someone shared your movie on uh, Twitter and I was just like, bing, bing, bing. I'm like, this I'm... looks interesting. And then I was like, who's this guy? And then I'm like, where's that movie? And then I got to it yeah. and, and I definitely was excited to see it and, and glad that you were so willing to, you know, respond and to get in touch and to get on our schedule so we could have this chat with you today. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really appreciate it. And it's been a blast. Thanks so much right. for having me on. All right. So hopefully we can actually see, uh, meet each other in real life at some point, somewhere God out on the willing. road in our sprinters. So, all right, well, so hang loose, Paul, we'll talk to you more after we cut out of the live stream here, but I'm going to go ahead and run to our end sequence. Thanks everybody for listening and being a part of it and go find Paul's shit. Peace. Go find Paul's work. Cause it's real good. Take care, everybody. Okay guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and, and help us out. Again, anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast. Click on support this podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone.